Hello and welcome to the menu, Monocle Radio's food and drink program. I am Markus Hippi. This week, why beans deserve much more appreciation and the recipes you should not miss. Generally, people have not had a, a good view of them, but I think, you know, the tide is really turning and we're seeing them continuously be championed as the food of our future and something that can also be really delicious as well. Then how to make cocktails more environmentally conscious. Limitation is the creativity in a way, not being able to throw things away. You start thinking about how I can use them. It, it boosts your creativity so much. And you're being mindful about ingredients and uh, you're being mindful about transportation, pollution, all those things. Uh, it fills you with motivation. We will also find out how Italian rosé wines are challenging their French competitors. And we get the week's top news headlines too. All that here on the menu on Monocle Radio. Beans aren't always the most appreciated ingredients you might find in the back of your cupboard, but that is slowly changing. One sign of that is Bold Bean Co., a company launched by Amelia Christie Miller that sets out to offer some of the best quality products on the market. Now, Amelia has also written a cookbook all about recipes with beans. Bold Beans, Recipes to Get Your Pulse Racing is out in July. And it contains dozens of recipes that are bound to change anyone's perceptions of beans as staple ingredients and about how versatile they can be. Amelia joined me in the studio and began by explaining how her business idea for Bold Beans Co. was born. Well, I was working in the food sustainability space. I was working with top London chefs and restaurants and also farmers and growers and producers. Um, and in this space, I was learning a lot about soil health issues. I was learning about food security, obviously the need to reduce meat and many of the issues just facing our food system. And through that journey, I became bean obsessed because the more you dig into a lot of these issues, you realise that the answer lies in beans. <laughs> I have to say that beans haven't been having an amazing reputation, at least recently. It's quite a job to rebrand them, isn't it? <laughs> Absolutely. I, I kind of think that because beans were so closely linked with poverty in the kind of 20th century, there has been a huge stigma behind eating them. Obviously, there's, you know, gas as well, which people find very entertaining. But generally, people have not had a, a good view of them. But I think, you know, the tide is really turning and we're seeing them continue continuously be championed as the food of our future and something that can also be really delicious as well. Tell me how you launched your business in practical terms. How do you find the best beans around and and how did you decide what exactly it is you're going to be offering? So often you're looking for a quality of bean um, that has very thin skins. So if you notice mainstream bean varieties often have very thick skins they're a little bit chewier and we were looking for thin skins that had really creamy centers and that often comes in different varieties from the norm so for example our butter bean actually has a different latin name to um, the conventional butter bean it's got a it's got a thinner skin and it's a lot creamier so that's that's kind of what we were hunting for but it was a lot of 
tasting beans to get to our beans that we we ended up going for. What is your beer selection like at the moment? So we have um, queen butter beans, we have queen chickpeas, we have queen red beans, queen black beans, and then we have organic white beans and organic chickpeas. And now you have also released a book. Tell me about that. Yes. So Bold Beans is a real celebration of beans. I am so excited about it because I think part of the journey into making people love beans is really getting them to see them in a new light and seeing them beyond a chili con carne, beyond a three bean salad. And this book really is that. You'll flick through the pages and immediately see this kind of lively recipes that feature beans, but are really no compromise from even if it doesn't have meat in it, you wouldn't notice because there's so much going on and beans really offer that substance substance in the dish. I think it's really interesting to find a book like this. I felt really inspired when I was, when I was leafing through the pages. And as you point out in the book as well, it's interesting that we haven't even had that many bean recipes recently because beans have had such a bad reputation. Absolutely. And particularly, you know, in countries, for example, um, in in the Mediterranean, there are a lot of um, bean dishes which are kind of native to Spain, to Italy, and they love beans and they still retain that bean culture. But in countries where you've seen the industrialization of livestock farming and meat happen more over the years, we've noticed that actually the, the consumption of beans has declined rapidly. Mm. So that's kind of really where the gap is. I'm aware that now we are now that we're talking about how great beans can be, I think we should kind of try to exemplify what kind of recipes we actually have on those pages. They're not boring. They're not. We definitely tried to not make them boring. But it's really, you know, there's so much versatility when it comes to beans. So, you know, we have butter bean puttanesca. We have uh, butter beans with ricotta and uh, fresh pesto and lemon zest. We've got a red bean ragu, which is delicious. It's kind of, you slowly cook a sofrito and you add lots of mushrooms and red wine and red beans. And it, it results in this beautifully rich and substantial ragu, which you serve with maybe a dollop of ricotta and some um, some parmesan. And it, and it really isn't a compromise from um, a bolognese. It's not trying to be a bolognese. It's trying to just celebrate the bean and what we can do with it. Are there some specific preparation methods you quite like, something that that brings up new dimensions in beans? Yes, I would say that one of the best, you know, for example, we have the perfect hummus in in the recipe. And one of the ways to achieve the perfect, smooth, creamy hummus is through cooking the beans to the point where the skins disintegrate into into the whole mixture, which means that you don't have any of the texture when you're when you're when you're dipping into the hummus. So that's just an example. But there's also we've got hacks for whether you're using a can of beans or a beautiful jar to really make the beans a little bit more tender, a little bit more kind of perfectly seasoned that really help lift the dish overall. So now over these recent years since you launched your company, do you feel like you've managed to make people understand how exciting beans can be or are you still faced with this idea that they are something not that exciting? I would say we have a big divide. There's people who know us, they've tasted our beans, they've seen our recipes and they have truly become bean mad and that is exactly what we're trying to do and that's really exciting and then there are also people that I will meet and you know tell them that I work in food and they will be oh god beans why are you doing that and I love that tension. What does it take to win them over? They've got to, first of all, 
see how beans can be vibrant and delicious through recipes, whether that's going to a restaurant and seeing them in an aspirational light, looking at our cookbook. But then I also think it's fundamental for them to see a bean that's truly cooked very well and with a lot of love. And I think that's either cooking a bean from scratch or purchasing, you know, quality beans such as the ones that we sell. So it's really trying to get them to see that you know, beans are not a commodity and there's so much variance, just like coffee beans. So perhaps if you think you don't like beans, maybe you're trying the wrong ones and maybe you need to see how they can be different. Have you come across anything exciting recently regarding beans, any new inspirational recipes? They've discovered a bean that can grow in deserts, which is really cool because obviously, you know, if you look at our food future and some of the catastrophes we may face, we're going to need to rely on crops that can do, can grow in very tough conditions. And the fact that they've discovered this bean is is just really exciting. And then when it comes to recipes, um, I've noticed there's a lot of people kind of really using beans as a replacement for pasta. So, you know, white bean cacciapepe or, as I said, butter bean puttanesca or, you know, using beans with pesto because everyone knows what to do with pasta and they all want to eat more beans and because they're healthy, they're full of protein. So it's just quite an easy substitution putting beans in your favourite pasta recipe and either replacing it with pasta or um, just adding them as an addition. It must be a really exciting time for someone from the bean industry considering how things are changing. I understand it's the UN that now wants to double the consumption of beans in the world. Yeah, so the UN came together thinking, okay, right, what campaign can we launch that will help move us towards the sustainable development goals um, in regards to food and farming? And they chose beans, which is incredible. Um, and what they, it's, the, it's a campaign called Beans is How, and it stemmed around this idea of like, how are we going to build um, resilience in our food system? Beans is how. How are we going to reduce meat? beans is how it's kind of seeing beans as this you know this this wonderful food group that we need to reframe and reimagine and get people to fall in love with now your book bold beans recipes to get your pulse racing it's it's out now where is your focus next are you planning maybe to release other books or what's happening with the business yes i mean we would love to launch more books around beans but we're also our whole mission is to get people obsessed with beans and whatever way that looks like we will be trying to do so you know we're experimenting with ideas around new products that will get people to see how beans can be consumed differently we're always trying to excite people with recipes and we'd love to do a follow-on cookbook that maybe is purely plant-based or a follow-on cookbook that is more about comfort food with beans because we really think that once people start to fall in love their appetite just grows for eating more of them and your beans they are mostly available in the uk at the moment i understand yes yes we've got ambitions to grow beyond that but um it's early days and we really want to kind of convince the uk first Amelia Christie Miller there, and her book Bold Beans, Recipes to Get Your Pulse Racing, is out in July. A cocktail can be a little bit of fantasy in a glass. It is perhaps the ultimate escapist beverage. With a caipirinha in hand, you can pretend you are on Ipanema Beach, and a mojito can carry you to Cuba without the need for a flight. So it's not perhaps the most obvious candidate for a green makeover. Nonetheless, there is a growing movement of sustainable mixology, which aims to make cocktails as environmentally conscious as they are mood-enhancing. 
interesting. A prime example came at the recent Brina Festival of Cocktails and Mixology in Slovenia's capital Ljubljana, as well as sipping on locally distilled spirits. Visitors could get the lowdown on sustainable shaking and stirring, courtesy of mix maestro Dominik Gobetz. Monaco's man in Ljubljana, Guy Deloni, was among them. Welcome to Krizanka, the outdoor theatre in the centre of Ljubljana's old town. This place has something of a feel of ancient Greece about it, but this evening everything is about modern mixology because there are about a dozen gin producers from around Slovenia in attendance, plus stalls with the top mixologists from Slovenia who are stirring up the most delicious possible cocktails for the people in attendance. And tonight, in a special move, we have sustainable mixology. How to use every ingredient to the maximum. Dominique will present it. I hope you will enjoy. Thank you very much. Enjoy. Hello. My name is Dominic Gobetz from uh, Slovenia. I work in the hospitality industry for years, but uh, mostly I'm a mixologist and I love making drinks, alcoholic and non-alcoholic. So nice! Sustainable mixology, in essence, would be using ingredients to their full potential. If it's possible to uh, make a full circle out of it, uh, be mindful, make conscious drinks, add them some uh, content, in a way, by storytelling, supporting uh, local producers, using their ingredients and help them grow, and, in general, reduce waste and think in a way to use less energy than you would in your daily operations. Why does mixology need sustainable mixology? It's not something which, to be honest with you, Dominic, crossed my mind before. So why are you so passionate about it? Limitation is the creativity in a way. Not being able to throw things away. You start thinking about how I can use them. It, it boosts your creativity so much. And you're being mindful about ingredients and uh, you're being mindful about transportation, pollution, all those things. Uh, it fills you with motivation. What sort of waste is there? You know, if I'm going to wear a standard cocktail bar, you're talking about waste. What sort of waste are you talking about? These big companies that make syrups and uh, infusions, if we reduce this a little bit by making our own syrups, we're also thinking about so many packaging that it ha is happening in their factories. When these companies see people are more focused into making their own syrups, they'll be thinking about, is our syrup quality enough? Is our packaging a problem? Can we make a packaging in a different way? Can we send to a bar that's using a lot of this, a big batch, which is returnable, and then they can fill it and bring it back? This is small steps in a sense, but it makes a huge difference if everybody is doing it. Obviously, if you're getting a cocktail, this is a little bit of escapism. It's a little bit of hedonism. We don't drink cocktails to feel better about the world uh, on the whole, at least not in the sense of thinking that we're doing good for the world. We generally want to drink the cocktail to feel better about uh, our lives, ourselves, the evening that we're having, the, the friends that we're with. Can sustainable mixology deliver all the traditional things that people actually want from a cocktail experience? I think it delivers that in a better way. 
than it does traditional mixology. People come nowadays and demand more than just classic cocktails. They want to experience a story. Uh, where did this ingredient come from? Uh, who is the producer? They're interested in the whole thing. What you can build here is experience for the guests, which is a big plus of also like mixology connected with sustainability. At this festival, you're involved with the signature cocktail of the event, which is, funnily enough, available in multiple different mixers. Mm -hmm. What's going on here, for example, that, that's, a, that's an example, good example of sustainable mixology and how people can really enjoy it? Mm -hmm. What we made for this festival was uh, cordial, which is basically a kind of a syrup but contains more water than sugar. And the flavors we incorporate are strawberry and tarragon, which is... Tarragon is a very specific uh, ingredient for uh, the city of Ljubljana. And, and also strawberries. A lot of people go to the local market here. They pick strawberries. You can see people walking down the street or in the city center with strawberries every Saturday when the market is open. Every bar made a different drink, but every bar had this cordial in mind. So some added bourbon, some added tequila, some added gin, some topped it with tonic, another made uh, a shaken drink. So it's, you can have a lot of uh, different strawberry and tarragon cocktails here. We made the strawberries in a syrup, and then later from these strawberries we made jam. And we also had this jam here, and we were making the cocktails from jam, lemon, and, uh, and whiskey. So that is what I call a full, full circle. Mm -hmm. Shpela's handing over the drinks. What have we got here, Shpela? Uh, so I brought you a cocktail called Brinzel. It is from a place called Zadnia Chansa, last chance in English. And it is one of the varieties of Brina cocktail, which includes uh, strawberry and tarragon syrup. Uh, so uh, I hope you enjoy them. Thank you. Oh, yes. <laughs> thing is, Dominic, bearing in mind that all the bars here, all the stalls here, with their excellent mixologists, mm -hmm. have got access to uh, your cordial. Mm -hmm. How much trouble would I be in if I tried to every single one of those drinks? I think you would be in a lot of trouble. <laughs> what, what we're trying to do here, um, it's also, um, we, we, we say out loud that having cocktail is hot cocktails is great it's like you have a bunch of friends uh, with uh, you're having a good time but also mindfulness with this goes as a parallel with sustainability a cocktail makes you think it's not about just the loads of um, alcohol or sugar content that you're having explore the flavors have less and enjoy it with a sober head as much as possible how does this sustainable mixology fit into this increasingly strong brand they have in Slovenia of fine food, fine wine, fine drinks. What we wanted to do, wanted to do in, a, in a collaboration with Tourism of Ljubljana is like show people that also cocktails are another wave that is coming and uh, another way to think about like beverage types which are interesting, funky and explore flavors and add another dimension. So this is the first year we're, that we're having this whole event and I think the response is awesome. So I just look around and I see so many happy faces and um, I hope, not hope, I'm sure we're going to have uh, next year another opportunity to hang out here. So yeah, awesome. To 
be frank, if I try and sample something from every stall at the Brina Festival in Krizhanka, I'm going to be in serious trouble. So I'll try to restrain myself, but it won't be easy. Nonetheless, I will console myself with the thought that at least in some ways I have contributed to the ways of sustainable mixology through my consumption of these cocktails. For Monocle, in Ljubljana, I'm Guy Delaunay. Thanks to Guy Delaunay for that report. You are listening to The Menu. Up next, it's time for the week's food and drink headlines. Here is Monocle's Monica Lillis. Domestic sales of red wine in France have fallen by half since the 1990s, according to a new study. The American Association of Wine Economists found that overproduction coupled with changing drinking habits has meant that the once much-loved drink has fallen in popularity. In the same time period, rosé wine sales have skyrocketed by 93%. A still-life fresco resembling a pizza has been uncovered in the ruins of Pompeii in southern Italy. The painting, which is thought to be at least 2,000 years old, shows a lavish meal with a pizza-like bread at its centre, and archaeologists say it could be a distant ancestor of Italy's famed dish. The food item is also shown alongside a goblet of wine and yellow fruit, but lacks the classic pizza ingredients of tomato and mozzarella. And convenience stores in South Korea are freezing their ice cream prices despite a scheduled price hike. In a bid to meet their consumers' price stability needs, major store chains such as 7-Eleven and E-Mart 24 said they would hold off on applying the price increase for the popular ice cream brand Lottie Well Foods. The stores will also adjust their prices for other popular items such as ramyeon and crackers. Those are the week's food and drink headlines. Now back to Marcus. Thanks, Monica. You are with Monocle Radio. Next up on the menu, we explore the place of rosé wines in Italy. While producers in southern France have long been seen as the leader in this segment of the wine market, Italian wineries have made strides in recent years to create an impressive selection of rosés made in different styles and taste profiles from the country's varied climates from north to south. We sent Monocle correspondent Ivan Cavallio to Sicily recently, where he met up with Master of Wine Elizabeth Gebey and Italian winemaker Luca da Toma to hear about the potential of so-called pink wine in the country. In summer, as temperatures rise, people look to enjoy refreshing wines. Often, this means drinkers choosing bottles of chilled rosé, wines made from red grapes where the skin stay in contact with the juice for a short period. While the French, particularly producers in Provence, have dominated this slice of the market with their pale pink-hued vintages using Syrah, Grenache, and other varietals, Italian wineries have begun to make waves in this segment. One who has been keeping close tabs on developments is Elizabeth Gabay, a master of wine and the world's foremost expert on rosé. I recently caught up with Gabay in Sicily at a wine fair, where she explained why Italian rosé is still a relatively new phenomenon. Italian rosé is, I think, one of the last bastions for for wine consumption in Italy. One argument is that Italians like to drink wines with a historic context. They like to think that this is what they drank 
500 years ago, 300 years ago, and rosé doesn't have that. Rosé is a very much a modern thing. Is it a French invention? It's not an Italian invention. It's what women drink. It's what you drink ice cold on the beach. So they don't have a context of drinking rosé as a gastronomic wine, and that makes a big difference in Italy. For Gabay, the allure of Italian rosé is the diversity of local varietals available to make this summery wine, including grapes, such as Nerlo Mascalese from Mount Etna, to the Chiretto wines from Lake Garda, made from varietals such as Corvina. Italian rosé made with indigenous grape varieties is showing to be some of the most exciting rosés, potentially, and I use the word potentially very, very significantly. I think Sangiovese in Tuscany has the potential to be amazing. What we've seen in today's tasting is the indigenous grape varieties in Sicily, whether we're seeing uh, Negromaro in Puglia or Grappello in Val Tennessee. The indigenous grape varieties have the potential to be super exciting, reacting to climate change, lots of variety, but it's still potential. So a couple of years ago, we were tasting rosé that showed a lot of local expression. Personally, I think there has been a decline in quality as they've tried to be more commercial and more international. And we need a return towards what rosé can do with local grape varieties and embracing a regional style. Ceresuolo d'Abruzzo is a classic example. One Italian winemaker who has been making strides to raise the quality of local rosé is enologist Luca da Toma. Based in Tuscany, da Toma consults with numerous wineries and has a track record of crafting impressive rosé wines from across the Bel Paese. Da Toma admits that rosé wines may not be the best known in Italy, but he's a firm believer in them since he started out in winemaking. Why is it that they work so well, Da Toma says? It's that they are wines for all seasons. They work for the aperitivo hour, for socializing, for festive moments, and also because they pair well with a wide selection of dishes. Natoma pours me a selection of rosé wines, starting with a pink-hued variety hailing from Sicily. Natoma explains that this rosé is more rounded and full-bodied than its French counterparts. Made by softly pressing two native red grape varietals, Nerello Mascalese and Nerello Capuccio, found on the slopes of Mount Etna. Another remarkable wine by Datoma, called Si, from his winery, Duemani, is 100% Syrah Rosé from biodynamically grown vineyards on the Tuscan coast, made in Amphora. The bottle is striking with its bright cherry red hue, and it has a nose of fresh stone fruit and savory notes of Mediterranean scrub. When it comes to pairings with food, Gabay has a few tips on styles and which grapes do best beyond summertime. The important part for if you're matching rosé with food, the time of year you're drinking the rosé is more the temperature you're serving that wine. You take it out of an ice bucket in November, nothing will taste good with food. You need something a bit warmer. You also need a rosé, I would say, that's slightly darker in colour over autumn and winter. You're going to get more fruit, more structure. Oaked rosé again, but oaked rosé in Italy is not a big thing. 
I would say maybe Sangiovese rosé is more likely to be oaked, Nebbiolo rosé, but on the whole it's much more fruit flavoured. Thinking of it with food, that acidity, you know, acidity cuts through cheese, whereas the fruit gives it um, a lot more body. What's clear after tasting rosés from the north, central and south of Italy with Datoma and Gabay is that drinkers have a whole new world to discover, ensuring rosé wines from the Bel Paese have a bright future. For Monocle in Sicily, I'm Ivan Carvalho. Thanks to Ivan Cavallo for that report. And that's all for this edition of The Menu. Remember that we are back with a new episode again on Friday at 2000 London time. That's at 1500 in Toronto. Also, remember our spin-off show Food Neighbourhoods, where we tour some of the world's tastiest destinations. And obviously you'll find many more reports on great hospitality from the brand new edition of Monocle magazine. I am Marcus Hippi. The programme was researched by Monica Lillis and our studio engineer was Kellen McLean. Once again, we finish this program with a dinner soundtrack recommendation. Here is Rosé with On the Ground. Thanks for listening and until next week. I worked my whole life just to get right, just to 